Father, we thank you that as we cry out, declaring our need for you, that that cry does not go unheard and unanswered. Yes, you promised through your Son, Jesus Christ, to meet us right where we're at and give us all we need for salvation, for sanctification, for the ability to walk by the power of your Spirit. Lord, now as we look to your word, may you guide the words that come from my lips to glorify your name and edify your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, go ahead and take a seat. Um, man, how about Matt doing that all with one hand? Man, I'm just... Yes, indeed. <laughs> Um, so I've been thinking uh, a lot about greatness this week, uh, and, and it comes from our passage, um, and one of the reasons that, that I've been thinking about that and, and, uh, and God's definition of strength and greatness is because, well, our passage has everything to do with that, and specifically I've, I've been thinking about what kinds of characteristics we sort of associate with that word, with, with greatness in our culture. Um, and when it comes to, I mean, sports, you know, we think of uh, people like Tom Brady or Kobe Bryant or Wayne Bretzky or Hank Aaron or, you know, dare I say, LeBron James, who are known for their incredible skills in their particular sport. Uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, we think of Perhaps uh, today Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs who literally have implemented ideas that have uh, changed the way that we communicate and the way that uh, we take pictures and the way we do business and travel and the list can go on and on. And uh, perhaps with, with no exceptions, greatness is almost always associated with how much we accomplish through hard work, self-discipline, determination, perseverance. We can almost trace a straight line to all those things to determine whether someone will be great or not. And indeed, I mean, in most spheres of life, I think that's true. We know that's true, that to be great in anything, it takes a lot of hard work, and most characteristics do matter. So, I have to believe when the disciples of Jesus come up to him in our passage today, and ask him the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We would expect for Jesus to describe someone with those precise characteristics. Presumably then, Jesus would, I don't know, pick out a disciple amongst the group that most accurately reflected those various characteristics. They probably also would be Peter. If Jesus, after all, just done a miracle in the midst of Peter, in a way that he hadn't done with the disciples right before our passage tonight, and so maybe, you know, be more like Peter if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom. And then the other disciples would be filled with a little jealousy and then be spurred on to work harder themselves to truly be great. But that is not at all what we will see Jesus do. 
Instead, he points out that greatness in his kingdom involves an entirely different mindset. First of all, to Jesus, greatness looks like humility. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Don. We'll pick up a verse 2 of Matthew chapter 18. And calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, literally could be translated, are turned, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, literally in Greek there when it says sin in our English translations, it's to stumble. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. We'll stop there for now. Now, as much as we tend to value children in our modern Western world, when we hear Jesus say the words that we just read, we hear something that at least makes sense to us, at least a little bit. We assume by his words that what he probably means is something like, if you would be great in the kingdom of God, be innocent like this child here before you. Be great in that sense, in a moral sense. But back in that time, that is not how his hearers would have understood this at all. In fact, what he does here is downright shocking. Because back in that day, children weren't seen as particularly valuable at all. And in fact, they were actually seen as pretty useless. I know, I, I mean, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that was the norm in Greco-Roman culture. In his book, When Children Became People, Owen Bakke writes, Cisco made the well-known observation that it is difficult to find any reason to praise a child for its inherent qualities. Any reason. It deserves praise only on account of the potential it has to become something in the future. That is, an adult human being with the qualities and characteristics of adulthood. But the thing itself, the child, cannot be praised only its potential, end quote. Well, if that was the case in the perspective of Jesus' hearers, then Jesus is not saying primarily that to be great in this kingdom we must become innocent like children. This is not about morality at all. No, Jesus is saying we must be lowly like children. We must see ourselves as dependent like children. We must know before the eyes of God that we have no chance of survival apart from His help. It looks a lot like one, what one might see or hear in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. There, the requirement for getting in is not to list one's accomplishments. In fact, it is the opposite. It is to list one's failures. 
This is the first three of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Number one, we admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Number two, we have come to believe that only a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, we have made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. When Jesus holds up a child as the example of what greatness looks like, that's what it looks like. Utter humility. Being humbled. Thus, what greatness really looks like to Jesus is kind of a form of dying. Listen to verse 7, next slide. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Stop there for a second. Two quick things about this part of the passage. Again, one, one thing to point out, the word for temptations to sin or temptations is most accurately or precisely translated stumbling block or snare, like a trap. The idea being that we are living in a world filled with traps and stones that can trip us up as we walk in the Christian life. That's the idea. But number two, notice immediately where Jesus ends up focusing our attention. Not on all the traps that those bad people out there somewhere are going to leave for you. Where does he focus the attention? On your own body. Listen to verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. It's clear here that Jesus is saying greatness in the kingdom of God does not look like sort of lazy acceptance of one's sins or rationalizations for one's uh, failures. No, no, that's not the way it works. I mean, Jesus uses extreme word pictures in this passage. He says, you know, you know gouging out your eyes if they cause you to sin, cutting up your feet if they cause you to sin. But of course, the truth is it goes... It goes way deeper than that. It goes way further than this. Because one can gouge out their eyes and still find themselves lusting. One could cut off their feet and still find themselves drawn into temptation. If you ever doubted this, just read some of the accounts of some of the early church hermits and monastics to see what I mean. There was a number of them, some of them quite influential, people like Origen, that actually didn't name themselves. They took this literally. Why? So that they could avoid sin. And 
if you read the accounts from them of what the result was after they named themselves and what to avoid sin is, well, guess what? They still struggle with sin. And why is that? Because Jesus in another passage says sin is not merely a matter of what we do externally with our hands or our feet or what we see with our eyes or what we listen to with our ears. No, sin is a matter of the heart that is in you. I mean, he says it as clear as can be in Mark chapter 7. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within ourselves. Well, if this is the case, Jesus' point is that we should be so extreme about sin that we must be willing to get rid of the very heart that would produce such stumbling blocks. Well, what happens to our hearts if we don't have what happens to us if we don't have a heart? Maybe you rip out the heart. You're not lasting too long, folks. You did. Jesus pictures that the greatness of the kingdom of God looks like dying. It looks like picking up a cross and dying for yourself. It looks like having your hearts of sin, heart and stone ripped out to use the prophet Ezekiel's language. Well, then the question is, well, how does that happen? Like, how do you... Get, how do you get a new heart? Where can it go to die and yet still live? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6. Here's what he says in verse 3 of Romans 6. All of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There it is. That's where our hearts of sin and stone that are dead in trespasses and sins are transplanted in the hearts beating by the Spirit's power. To quote the prophet Ezekiel in his 36th chapter, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and what will happen? You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And what will happen? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So let's, let's put all this together. To be great in the kingdom of God means to be humble. Humble to the point where we acknowledge our sinful hearts are such a problem that they must die. And where these wicked, meets, wicked hearts need to go to die, the waters of baptism. Now, just being honest here, initially, all this humble to the point of death stuff um, probably doesn't sound very appealing. 
because this is the process of greatness. It starts there. Because it's only when we've been humbled to that point where we know we can't survive any of ourselves. When we've let go of all illusions to fix the situation ourselves. When those thoughts and those visions have died, we must, like the alcoholic, alcoholic just referenced, be brought to a place where we can only fling ourselves in dependence on the mercy of another greater power. When that happens, it leads us to see the greatness of being rescued. Listen to verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. You see the trajectory of Jesus' answer to the disciples' question about greatness. Starts with humility, moves on to denying sin to the point of death, and then immediately, immediately takes us to being rescued from that death. Because though we all, like sheep, have gone astray, our good shepherd Jesus has come out to save us. Indeed, Jesus pursues us as we've gone astray so that he might rescue us to life. As you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your sinful heart is put to death. But it is also there in that baptism that you are raised to new life, rescued by the Spirit's power. And it is constantly through looking back to what God has done for you that then you will find the power to walk in this new life that He has given you. Martin Luther used to say this every time you wash your face. Remember your baptism. Why? Because there, that's where God objectively declares to you forgiveness of sins. Remember each and every day as you wash your face, when you take a shower, remember as the water pours down on you that the water of God's Spirit has poured down on you already and rescued you. And why? Why does it happen? Jesus tells us in verse 14, because it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. You and I, and all of them out there, He doesn't want any to perish. To die as a result of their sin. And that leads to the last thing in our passage that looks like greatness to Jesus. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him this one. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witness, witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. 
Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Greatness looks like restorative relationship to Jesus. When reading this passage at first, or maybe hearing it just now, it may have seemed a little disjointed to you from what we've read so far. I mean, after all, at least in the first 14 verses, you have this connecting title to each, uh, to the, the connecting title of little ones. And then verse 15 doesn't use that anymore, and so maybe it's separate. But, but here's the deal. In the original text, there is no distinct, there's no separation between verses 14 and 15. Jesus is still in the process of giving of answering the same question that was posed to him. So, by that standard, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, according to the end of the passage, to Jesus, great, greatness looks like not merely humbling ourselves to the point of death so that we might receive forgiveness and rescue, but also being people that care so much about our fellow sheep that when they've gone astray, we would reach out to them with the hand of restored relationship. Based on the fact that it is not the Father's will that any should perish, Jesus now calls us as his church to do the same sort of restorative, rescuing work he's done for us. And please know, the restorative work is a process. First, you go to the person yourself, privately. If they refuse to hear you, then maybe you want the person. And if they still refuse, they're still having that happen, then maybe you bring the church into it. But what's the purpose of it? That they might be brought back into the fold. That they might be brought into safety. And he says, well, Jesus says, if they still reject you after bringing them to the church, to treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Yeah! And how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He constantly invited them in. He didn't stop pursuing people because they were Gentiles or tax collectors. We have too many stories of him doing precisely the opposite. We have too many stories of his apostles doing precisely the opposite. He shares the word of God with them that they might be restored, forgiven, and brought back in. So what does greatness in God's kingdom really look like? Put it all together. It looks like humility. It looks like dying. It looks like being rescued. And it looks like relational restoration. In other words, ultimately, it, 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 looks, like, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of what it is to be great. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. He was resurrected and bestowed on him the name of his mother every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, rescue and restoring relationship with mankind in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God is Jesus. And ultimately, how we might be great in the kingdom of God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, I ask that now as we prepare to receive Jesus at your table, very body and blood, friends, that you would assure us that we have all the greatness we need for your kingdom right there. Help us, Father, to receive with faithful hearts and with joy. We pray in Jesus' name.